welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Welcome to this bonus episode of Plenary Session. On this bonus episode, we're going back in time to the fall of 2019. This is the long-awaited third part of the three-part Hemonc lecture series I give every year. You won't want to miss this discussion, and for Patreon backers, you'll have access to the slides which have been posted earlier this week, and you can use those slides to make sense of this lecture. Without it, it'll be quite difficult. So, those of you who want access to the slides, you can sign up on Patreon. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, let's start. So, in the last session, we talked about uh, crossover, and we were ending with quality of control arms. So let's talk about this. Okay, so this was Talal. You remember him. He came and visited here for a month working with Tom. Okay. Recently, we had this publication. A phase three trial of ibrutinib plus rituximab in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, the Innovate study. And this showed that ibrutinib plus rituximab is better than placebo plus rituximab, median PFS not reached versus median PFS 20 months. What do you think? Pretty good benefit. Hazard ratio 0.2. Have you ever seen it that good, Sven Olsen? So the authors of this study cited this paper that appeared in the Lancet Oncology to justify their choice of control arm. Okay, so this was a large observational retrospective chart review. And, uh, Lest I be accused of thinking these have no value, they sometimes have value, which is to tell you what people are actually doing. And so this looked at people with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia in Europe, where they are still probably lagging behind the medications they used in the United States. And single agent rituximab, so these are red are all the people who got single agent. Rituximab single agent as initial therapy in Waldenstrom's is seldom, if ever, used. Fludarabine, 5% of people. Chlorambucil, a quarter. But much more commonly, it's chemoimmunotherapy. What do we like to use in this country? What do you like to use? Arbendamustine, yeah, that's what I like to use. I think arbortezomib is another popular regimen in this country, but we don't like FCR so much. So somebody pointed this out to the authors that there are different studies of these different regimens. And this was, Demopolis was the most recent, 75 people were enrolled in that. And the cost of one year of therapy is $250,000 for the abrutinib rituximab. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's indefinite, so it'll be continued, you know, at least the ibrutinib component is indefinite. So that'll go $100,000 year after year. Meanwhile, Benda rituximab is a fixed course of therapy, $123,000. This laser doesn't work. Bortezomib rituximab dex, $107,000. And cyclophosphamide rituximab dex, $56,000. And the duration of therapy is fixed versus continuous. And the median progression-free survival look at Benda rituxin was 70 months. And here it was not reached. Yes, bendamustine is, uh, at least in the United States, because it came from East Germany and had a re-up patent life, so it was used. So it, it was still pretty expensive. To be honest, that's probably in part why it had such high market penetration, was that people would come and detail it a lot. Yeah, but um, I guess I'd say it's still cheaper than ibrutinib rituximab, and it'll someday very soon. Actually, this was before. Now we have Treanda and Bendeca, uh, the Actually, I don't know if that's just reformulation or actually. I'll double check the price. Okay, so I think it's problematic in two ways. One, that control arm is seldom used in, as standard of care therapy. And two, there are alternatives that have much better progression-free survival. So, well, it says forthcoming, but it's been published. 
So Talal and I looked at everything from January 2013 to July 2018, 145 studies that led to 143 drug approvals. And of these studies, 47 single-arm studies were excluded. So we're just looking at the randomized studies, 98 studies leading to 96 drug approvals. Very rarely, um, very rarely do you have two studies in the same, for the same disease type. But almost universally in oncology, we're one trial to lead to approval. Of the 96 drug approvals, 16 were suboptimal control arms, just like this Waldenstrom study. 15 of those were international trials, and one was conducted in the United States. So generally, when we have suboptimal control arms, they're done internationally. Um, how are they suboptimal? In a quarter of the time, they limit the investigator's choice. So this is like a study of in, in triple negative breast cancer, we will compare olaparib versus investigator choice. But the choice does not allow you to give carboplatin or platinum agent, even though that might be what you would actually choose to do. So they limit the investigator's choice. 63% were using controls known to be inferior to other available agents or not allowing combinations. And that would be the case of the ibrutinib study. 13% used previously used treatment in control arm with known lack of benefit about on re-exposure. So it was a second line study, and it was bendamustine versus venetoclax rituximab. But you could have already have gotten bendamustine, but you couldn't have already gotten venetoclax. And another good example is carfilzomib, uh, revlimid dexamethasone versus bortezomib revlimid dexamethasone. Uh, but in that randomized control trial, you could have previously received bortezomib, but not carfilzomib. So it's like exposure to the agent versus another agent. Doesn't prove carfilzomib is a better proteasome inhibitor. I think it's actually quite prevalent. And one of the worst examples is nivolumab to carbazine. So you know, ipilimumab beat carbazine for overall survival in metastatic melanoma. And then a couple, two years later, um, nivolumab to carbazine in the exact same setting. But we had already moved to ipilimumab, and we weren't really giving to carbazine. And it was a randomized trial with overall survival as the endpoint, but the FDA did not give it full approval. They gave accelerated approval just based on the uncontrolled nivolumab arm only. And they didn't look at the cross-arm comparison, suggesting that I think they agreed that you know, the control arm is problematic. In our definition, the standard of care had to be there two years before the study enrolled the first patient. But very recently, we had um, oh, the approval of the second JAK2 inhibitor in myelofibrosis, FED something. Anyway, I looked at the clinical trial history, and uh, I tweeted it out, and basically, we had known ruxolitinib could shrink the spleen and reduce spleen symptoms. And then one month later, after the ruxolitinib approval, they started enrolling the first patient. So that wouldn't have met our current criteria because we used a two-year lag time, but it's still pretty problematic. OK, trials over time. OK, so there's some things you need to know. What if I took full fox in colorectal cancer and I gave it to 100 people? What's the response rate? Metastatic. Frontline, yeah. Yeah, I think like 45%, 40-50%. A little higher frontline, maybe. Okay. If I look at phase two clinical trials with response rate, so for instance, um, we give, uh, we give, um, what do you find? That's it, fedratinib. Yeah, it should be an FDA talk. It just got approved last week. And it has a long regulatory history. Something's fishy. Okay. So if I... You know, somebody, you'll often go to your clinic and somebody will say, oh, there's a new abstract out at ASH, and it says that bortezomib has an 80% response rate in this tumor type, and we gave it to 50 people in a phase two study. What will be the response rate of bortezomib in that exact same tumor type, in that exact same line of therapy, in a randomized trial if they later ran a randomized trial? Is it going to be 80? Is it going to be the exact same? Higher or lower? Why lower? Okay, but it, sh it should be the same, shouldn't it? Because it shouldn't matter. Yeah. So I guess what's, in, what's interesting thought here is that we do know that people who enroll in phase twos are probably different than people who enroll in phase threes. They're run at fewer sites, you have to travel further, and you probably are enriching people for people who are able to have socioeconomic factors that allow them to go to a center and maybe even relocate and get the trial. You have all these kind of advantages. But what has been unknown is whether or not the biology of those patients is actually different tumor. Uh, are they more likely to have indolent biology or, or sensitive biology? So Zia and colleagues set out to ask this question. Compare the response rate in phase two clinical trials, the same regimen, against the response rate in subsequent phase three clinical trials. OK, so this was the paper that came out in 2005, Zia and colleagues. 
The response rate in phase two studies is plotted here. The response rate in phase three studies, same chemotherapy, same line of therapy, and same tumor type. Okay, you would expect the dots, if there's no bias, to be scattered around the line of equity, the one-to-one -one line. But in fact, what you find is 85% of the dots are below the line, suggesting that the response rate in phase two trials is bigger than the response rate in subsequent randomized phase three trials by about 12.5%. So there is this idea that in our phase two trial population, probably not the same as our phase three. And soon we'll ask the question whether or not it's the same as your clinic. This is another nice paper by Adrian Satcher. And this looks at the sample size of clinical trials over time. So he sampled a lot of trials in lung cancer, randomized trials between 81 and 90, 91 and 2000, 2001 and 2010. Okay, he's sampling, I don't know, a few hundred lung cancer clinical trials, randomized trials. The blue line shows you the sample size in these different epochs in time. So sample size over time is going up, okay? The dotted line shows you the difference between the two arms that can be considered statistically significant in the primary analysis, and the yellow line shows you the actual observed difference between the two arms that is, that is hailed by the authors as significant. Okay, so what do we see here? As time goes on, um, this is in, in a different axis. We used to enroll 200 people in a clinical trial and we would find four month differences in survival. Now we enroll over 400 people in clinical trials and we find less than two month differences in survival. What is going on? We're powering the trial. We're putting so many people in the arms of the trial. And as you put more and more people in the arms of the trial, the confidence interval around the point estimate in each arm gets smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually they don't overlap. So you actually have power to find very small differences between two arms of the study that are statistically significant but may not be clinically meaningful. And at the current trends, we're powering our trials to find ever smaller and smaller differences. <clears throat> efficacy, effectiveness. What is efficacy and what is effectiveness? Exactly. So efficacy is controlled clinical trial. Can this prove efficacy that under some circumstances it works? And effectiveness is when I deploy it in the real world with all the mess of the real world, does it actually make people better off? Okay, so in oncology, I think we suffer from an efficacy effectiveness gap. It's like the Grand Canyon. It's huge and it probably affects all of our practices. So this is the seven year experience of the US Food and Drug Administration, which was done a while back, 95 to 2002, but they updated it a couple years ago and it's about the same. And here's what it shows. If you look at Americans with cancer and you ask how many of them are over the age of 65, that's the tall bar. 60% of Americans are over the age of 65, 40% are over the age of 70, and about a third are over the age of 75. Cancer is a disease of the elderly. If you look at, random, if you look at any pivotal trial, uncontrolled or randomized, that leads to drug approval, only a third of patients are over the age of 65, 20% are over the age of 70, and like 10% are over the age of 75. So at every cutoff of age, we have younger people in pivotal trials than we do in the real world. Okay, so the average person on a clinical trial is younger than in the real world. Okay, that's point one. Point two. Okay, so you remember a randomized clinical trial called SHARP, which randomized patients to serafinib or placebo, and it's, the reg and it's the reason why we give serafinib in liver cancer. So it's advanced or metastatic, HCC, unresectable, and what child's pew do they have to have? A or B, I think, but there's like only like two people with B. Yeah, it's like super low with B. What's the response rate of serafinib in this study? I think it's lower, I think it's like 7%, single digit response rate. Um, and um, was placebo an appropriate trial comparator? Yeah, I guess I'd say yes. I guess I'd say yes because there was no FDA approved drug, but we were using something in those days. We were using doxorubicin, which had a very low response rate. So, I don't know, question mark there. But, um, here it's serafinib best supportive care. This uh, was a plenary session at ASCO and the median survival goes from like eight point something months to like 11 point something months, a different of 2.7 months or something like that. Okay, so is this a good benefit? Hazard ratio is like 0.7 something. What are you who's shrugging? Your classical hematologist shrugging. They don't want it. So you explain this and they don't want it. Okay. They also have very few comorbidities and they're fit enough to be on a clinical trial, okay? Now, this is what Stacy Dusitzina and Hannah Sanoff did from the University of North Carolina. They just downloaded the Medicare data set and they looked at every person in Medicare who received serafinib. That is the blue line. 
And Medicare is preferentially people over the age of 65. So people who are over the age of 65 or have some reason to be on Medicare. And this is the real world serafinib usage. What is the median overall survival in the real world, shown in the blue line in the right Kaplan-Meier? Look at the median. Yeah, it's like four months. Okay, what was the median survival of sugar pill in the clinical trial? Eight. So the median survival of people getting the active drug in the real world is half the median survival of people getting the placebo in the clinical trial. So not only is the clinical trial unrepresentative, maybe by Charleston comorbidity, maybe by um, Charles Pugh, maybe in ways we can measure. It's also unrepresentative in a way that we can't really, maybe we're not even measuring the way it's unrepresentative, but it's so unrepresentative that real world outcomes on the drug, 50% survival of sugar pill on the trial. It's grossly unrepresentative, okay? Okay, so that, that's kind of one suggestion. The trials don't reflect real patients. Here's another one. This is work done by Fehrenbacher from Kaiser Permanente. They took two randomized control trials for lung cancer that appeared about a decade ago. They enrolled 400, and then they applied it to 400 consecutive Kaiser Permanente patients. So in other words, you're doing randomized trials in metastatic lung cancer. Here are the next 400 people who walked into Kaiser. How many meet your inclusion criteria? And the answer was just 34% were eligible for your trial. So two-thirds of the patients weren't eligible. And when they added the extra anti-angiogenic um, exclusion criteria, only about one in five were eligible for the clinical trial. Okay, so what does this mean? Kaiser Permanente, broadly representative insurer, they are only getting one in five of their patients are eligible for a clinical trial by the explicit criteria. By implicit criteria, it might even be more restricted. Okay, so our conclusion here was, we say, overall survival, so response rate in an uncontrolled study is a surrogate endpoint because it merely correlates with what you hope to measure, which is overall survival in your clinic. Progression-free survival in a clinical trial is a surrogate endpoint. It merely correlates with what you care about that's overall survival in your clinic. We wrote in a paper in JAMA Oncology that said overall survival in a randomized pivotal clinical trial that comes for approval is a surrogate endpoint. It merely correlates with overall survival in the real world, but you don't know that for sure. So you should give it accelerated approval, let it come onto the market, and the post-marketing commitment should be a randomized trial done in, in your clinic, in my clinic, in everyone's clinic. We'll take 400 people, the next 400 people in America who come in and the doctor thinks that this trial, you know, they fit the inclusion label of the trial, or they fit the label of the drug. And we can randomize those people and confirm whether or not there is a benefit. And I guess the other point here is that some people say, oh, I didn't mention, the red line is a propensity score match group that didn't get serafinib, okay? That's people who are similar, based on sort of the covariates in the data set, which aren't extensive, but somewhat similar, um, who didn't get serafinib. And what's their median survival? About the same. Actually, there's no statistical difference. So somebody said, does this prove the drug doesn't work? It actually doesn't, because the drug has a hazard ratio of 0.7, meaning that there, it still might have a 0.7 hazard ratio here. But as survival gets shorter and shorter and shorter, seven, you know, a 30% difference is really, really short. And so when I talk to you about how the average cancer drug in lecture one has a 2.1 month survival benefit, that's in studies like this on the left. Those benefits are probably eroded when you extrapolate a toxic marginal drug to older, frailer patients in the real world. Those 2.1 months, it's not gonna get bigger, it's gonna get smaller. And then some people always ask me, you know, well, what about the person who derives the biggest benefit from the trial? Those people are out here on the tail of the curve. Somebody who was gonna live a year might end up living 15 months. They might also derive that 0.7 benefit. It might appear to be bigger, but they're few and far between. And the reality is, that they're much more likely to be many more people who are on this end of the curve, who are here, because the median survival is four months. You're looking at this group of people. This is the real benefit that's probably being captured in the real world. Very, very small benefit. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, that's a good question. This is a problem with accelerated approval in all contexts, which is once a drug is approved, no one in the United States will go on a placebo control arm of the study. So the way we have tried to address this is to say that at the time of approval, should have fully accrued the other study. Because once the drug is on the market, they're not gonna accrue. Once they're on, accrued on the study, can run it to completion usually. But that's a big problem even for drugs that, um, for placebo controlled trials for drugs that are approved based on response rate. Nobody wants to go on the control arm. And that's why we see like massive crossover. Um, okay, if you Google randomized controlled trial of bevacizumab, you find this, 63,700 results in 
in one-tenth of a second. How good is that? That's good, yeah. Uh, we have a lot of randomized trials in abevacizumab. Okay. What's, let's just pick one tumor type and run through some of them. Lung. Okay, we have a veil, which is cis, gem, plus or minus avastin. Positive or negative? Negative, no OS benefit. Carbopaclitaxel plus or minus bevacizumab. New England Journal paper. Carbopaclitaxel plus or minus avastin survival benefit, but it wasn't the case for cis, gem. And in colon cancer, we have IFL, survival benefit, not full FOX. And you know, in every one of these tumor types, there's many, many studies. And in breast cancer, we've tried avastin. We had E2100, we've had ribbon, and we've had Avato. And none of them have an OS benefit. And we've tried Avastin in GBM. We have two trials, at least. I mean, as you start to add up, we have at least dozens and dozens of Avastin trials. OK, we have MAPS. We have MAPS trial in mesothelioma. OK, clinical trials landscape for PD-1 inhibitors. We now have over 2,000 clinical trials of PD-1 inhibitors ongoing. They are Pembro, Nevo, Durva, Atezo, Avelumab, Semiplumab, other. And there are all these different trials pairing them with immuno-oncology, targeted therapy, chemotherapy, any way you want it, right? We have a lot of clinical trials. The cumulative enrollment for these trials exceeds the number of people who will, have metastatic, who will die of metastatic cancer this year in this country. We currently have 3% of people participating on clinical trials. This would require 103% of people to participate in clinical trials. You know, it's not even fulfillable in the US. You have to look globally. And many of these trials will not fully accrue. It's impossible, I think. This is the analysis of sunitinib. In, sunitinib was first approved for what tumor type? Renal cell. And it was then approved for what tumor type? GIST, GIST. OK, so the initial approval was in renal cell cancer and then GIST. This is a graph of time, 2005 to 2015. Circles mean uncontrolled studies. Diamonds mean uh, randomized studies. White means positive, And black means negative. OK, so you see time go on. As time goes on. What color, it goes from what color to what color? White to black, okay? We had the success in kidney cancer, we had the success in GI stromal tumor, and then as you go further out, it gets black. And look at all the different tumor types we're trying it in. Mesothelioma, small cell lung cancer, glioma, ovarian, myelofibrosis. If you looked at, say, Gleevec, imatinib, how many tumor types do you think imatinib has been tried in? A lot. How many of the tumor types imatinib has been tried in does the drug hit anything that has to do with the tumor type? Two, three, actually more than two. Okay, so we got, what are the ones where it actually works? Imatinib. CML, where else? GIST. What's the target in GIST? Yeah, okay, what else? What other semi-cancer? Yeah, HES, hyperesophilic syndrome. And what's the target there? PDGFR. Okay, but they've also tried it in prostate, and they've also tried it in all sorts of crazy things. And so what this shows you here is that over time, we're trying sunitinib in everything under the sun, and we're striking out much more than when we got in the beginning. And here's another graph. This is the cumulative response rate of the drug in the entire clinical trials agenda. It starts at 30% because we're trying it in the things that it works in, like GIST, where it has a response. And as time goes on, the cumulative response rate drops to 10%. And the cumulative percent of people who get the drug who have a grade 3 to 5 SAE, so 3 to 5 adverse event, goes up from very few to very high. So when you take a toxic drug that's active in certain diseases and start using it in lots of diseases where it's not active, what happens to response? You lose it. And what happens to toxicity? That's all you have. So the drug can only cause harm. There's nothing offsetting the toxicity. It's pure toxicity here. And now here, at least, the toxicity is being offset by the fact my tumor is shrinking and I actually can you know, feel a little bit better. Or they're pushing the dose. Here, we're trying, you can get away with 37.5 milligrams. And here, you've got to go 50. And at 50, your hands fall apart. OK, this is what immunotherapy is being tested in combination with. Why is immunotherapy being tested in combination so much with this one, CTLA-4? Nevo and Ipi. Because the drug company made a CTLA-4 drug, and they want to bundle it in with everything. That's what it is. It's like a, it, it's in the bundle. OK, so all right, this is the background. This is what the landscape looks like. What if I made a new drug? And the nice thing about my new drug is it has no drug-to-drug -drug interactions. And I can pair it with any drug in your clinic. Whatever drug you want to give the patient, you could add my new drug or not add it. Let's say I do a single randomized control trial of 100,000 people, adding my new drug or not adding. The one arm, they add it, and the one arm, they don't add it. And uh, I just take anybody in any of your clinic. Luai goes to lung cancer. We can enroll. We can enroll in colon and breast, whatever you want. I run this mega trial. And let's say the overall results are negative. But if I look in subgroups, the colon group was positive. The lung group was positive. 
Cervical was positive, brain was positive, but breast, prostate, and small, small cell were negative. Okay, so if I had this mega trial and I came to you and said, hey, let's use it in lung, what would you say? Yeah, rerun it just in lung. Why? It's a subgroup analysis. Exactly. And I could also divide this up by um, less than 60, over 60. You know, I could also divide it up by men, women. I could also divide it up by people LDH less than 100, 100 to 150, 150. I could divide it up that way. I could look in all these subgroups. How many subgroups could I look at? As kind of as many as I want. And in some of those, by chance alone, it'll be positive. So you have to either adjust for subgroups or you have to redo the trial in that subgroup. It's really considered hypothesis generating. Okay, now what happens if instead of running all these one mega trial, I just run separate trials in all of these tumor types, all separate. Some are positive, some are negative. How do we interpret these? Uh-huh, that's how we treat it. We, he's right, we treat these like you did the second trial up front, that these are all individual and they all hang on their own. But these are part of a cancer trials portfolio. It's the portfolio of all the trials you run. And actually, there is no difference between these two scenarios. The difference is, that each of these have a P of 0.05. And the subgroup is saying that there's a P of 0.05 for the whole thing. But when you run a lots of studies with a P of 0.05, by chance alone, some studies will be positive, by chance alone. So you should adjust the, the alpha across the entire portfolio. Okay, nobody does this. This is what we keep proposing. This is the idea of, this is the idea of the, the thinking about the portfolio. See, this guy Jonathan Kimmelman is smart. He did this study because he's not thinking about Sutent in any individual setting. He looks at the portfolio of trials. And, and where else might you look at that? Immunotherapy, and you look at it here. Okay, so we actually did this for Avastin. We looked at, we got a meta-analysis of every randomized trial in Avastin. And it's not even every trial. It's just like every trial the authors could find. There were 47 studies. And 30 of the 47 had a positive PFS. And only... Um, Seven out of 47 had a positive OS. So Avastin is much more likely to have a positive PS than a positive OF, OS. Okay? Agree. We always know that. If we look at the Avastin literature, it doesn't make sense. Some chemo backbones it work. Other chemo backbones it doesn't work. Some tumors it works. Other tumors it doesn't work. And when it works, it's not like the benefit is a year. The benefit is always on the order of one and a half to two and a half months. It's always the same benefit when it works. And when it doesn't work, the benefit is not existent. Okay, so what we did was we adjusted the portfolio as if each was a subgroup analysis. All right, so we say the 30 out of 47, we use something called Bonferroni. And only 21 out of 47 retained significance after adjustment. So we lost about 20% of positive trials. But for OS, of the 15% that were positive, only 1% or 2% remained significant. So there's only one trial that's really positive for OS when you consider how many times it's been tested. And so our hypothesis here is that, I guess what we're trying to argue here, is that part of, how do we know Avastin actually works or whether or not the individual trial successes are just because we've been testing it so many times? And if you added in ramucirumab and aflibercept, which are all kind of cookie cutter, why does ramucirumab work in GE junction and Avastin doesn't work in GE junction, but ramucirumab, Avastin, and aflibercept, they all work in second line colon. But in the first line colon, only Avastin worked. Now Ramucirumab doesn't work. Now suddenly it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And everybody who studies biology can come up with some reason why VEGF2 is overexpressed and here and there. I mean, you can always tell some story. But the story that no one's asking is whether or not, is it just possible that this is a drug that affects blood vessel growth? So it'll affect the way tumors look on scan. And if you affect how tumors look on scan, will we'll have a different measurement of the tumor if you affect how it looks on scan. And so you might find response and you might improve PFS. But maybe you don't actually change the survival of this in any tumor type. And the only reason it looks positive in some versus others is that you have run a whole heck of a lot of Avastin trials over the years. So this is a drug with like 70 to 80 billion in cumulative lifetime sales. And I think the question is whether or not it works in any tumor type, in any setting. So, yes. Well, okay, that's a whole nother can. I guess what I'd say is that on the most permissive end, you treat every trial separately. On the most stringent end, you use Bonferroni. Then everything in between is there's a whole number of statistical methods for false discovery, and they all have something in between. And so according to a frequentist model, the truth is something between Bonferroni and, the, and what you individually, maybe something in between, but it's not except them all, and maybe Bonferroni is too strict. I mean, people debate. But the other thing is we're only looking at the published trials. There are unpublished trials. 
There, and there's so many trials, and we're not looking at every trial. If I went to uh, Roche Genentech and I got a list of every trial, now I can apply something in a very honest way. Because also, like, this is almost too good to be true, 64% positive PFS. I mean, I think the, their meta-analysis raises the question of whether or not there's some sort of publication bias. Okay, so let's talk about this. What is precision oncology and what is personalized oncology? What does it even mean? Everyone always says precision oncology, precision oncology, precision oncology. Keep saying it. If you put in your grant, innovative, precision oncology, disruptive innovation, translational, precision oncology, precision, precision, precision. Okay, so we actually tried to do it. We a few years ago, I collected just very few articles between 2005 and 2010, 2013 and 2016 that used the phrase precision oncology. And we went through and we said, what does the author mean by it? And in 2005 to 2010, 53% of it meant targeted therapy, like a Gleevec, just a Gleevec or sunitinib, some targeted therapy. 26% meant the use of a biomarker to delineate subgroups, like ALK. If you have an ALK mutation, you give the drug, and if you don't, you don't. HER2, you give it or you don't. Use a biomarker, you test for it, and if you have it, you give it or you don't, you don't. Um, some people used it omics to guide therapy. So let's send a gene trails or a foundation medicine, and whatever we find, we'll, if we can drug it, we'll drug it. Then in 2013, targeted therapy was almost never used anymore. Nobody is saying that Precision oncology is just Gleevec. That's not precise anymore. You have to check for a biomarker, and only if you have the biomarker, give the drug, so EGFR and ALK. And omics to guide therapy is still you know, not too much. And genome sequencing, this is, this is really like the foundation medicines of the world, that's starting to gain prominence. By 2016, when people say precision oncology, all they meant was foundation medicine. We'll take relapse refractory tumors in different histology, and then you know, we'll, we'll drug it if we find it. And targeted therapy has totally fallen out of favor. And now tumor mutational burden is entering into the picture. So one point here is that the definition has shifted over time. There's no doubt about that. Here's some things you hear. We will no longer use histology to define cancer. We'll use mutations. So you'll be a PI3 kinase doctor, and you'll be a BRAF doctor. Every individual patient will be eligible for one or a combination of targeted drugs. And we are accelerating science, the exponential growth, and reaching an inflection point. These are quotes that I pulled from actual like, thought leaders. Okay. I think the way I like to think about it is, let's talk about the FDA-approved drugs, the basket studies, and then the NGS. So the FDA-approved drugs like ALK, crizotinib, where you test for the genome drug and then you drug it, we talked about this in the first, or in the last lecture, second lecture, where we show that like 80, just 8% are eligible for these drugs, most are not eligible. And the median response rate is 54%, so good, but it's not 88%. Um, 95% don't benefit, so this is the percent of people who don't have tumor shrinkage and have, just have tumor shrinkage response. Oh, I showed you this graph which shows the rate over time, but here I've added in the price of next generation sequencing as it fell. So, you know, this whole idea that sequencing, as the cost of sequencing fell, and by the way, this is a log axis, so it's really falling. We would have a bonanza of druggable targets. You know, it didn't happen at all. We sequence much cheaper than we've ever sequenced before, but the rate at which you, know, you would expect that this, as the sequencing is falling logful, this will kind of be picking up if we're really going to find all these druggable targets. Yes, the information on semiconductor, the, the speed will double every 18 months. Okay, the reason I say, I, always, I like to mention these are not cures. The median duration of some duration of response was like 30 months, which is, I, may, I think I made this point in one of the lectures, which I showed you, like how many years of life do ALK patients still lose? And they lose much more than they gain. You know, it's still like 17 years of life lost. Okay, this is ALK, KRAS, RET, and ROS1. So three druggable targets and one that we haven't yet drugged in lung cancer. And these are the survival curves. But here's the catch. They, all the patients in this study, this is PFS, all the patients got pemetrexid. What does pemetrexid have to do with these mutations? Nothing. Uh, this was done maybe seven, eight years ago at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they published it. They don't really know what they were publishing because it's like such a great piece of data. Okay, <laughs> what does this tell you? Yes, if you have a RAS mutation, your survival is worse with Pemetrexid than if you have a ROS1 mutation. Not this, not, I keep saying survival. This is PFS. The reason PFS matters here is this is on drug effect. This is Pemetrexid's effect on progression, not survival. There's no confounding here. There's no second drug that can be doing this. There's something about the biology of ROS1 that they are getting a huge, almost 20-month PFS benefit from Pemetrexid, for Christ's sake. Isn't that unbelievable? 
This is the uncontrolled study that led to drug approval of crizotinib, okay? This is crizotinib in ROS1. This is the study that led to drug approval. This is why we give crizotinib. And what's the median survival here? I don't know, 18 months? And what do you say? You say, that's really good because the median survival of lung cancer is, oh, this is progression-free survival. The median progression-free survival in frontline lung cancer is like, you average all these in your mind, and of course, RAS is more common. So you're getting something like, I don't know, 11-month PFS or something. That's what you tell the patient. And somebody publishes a study like this, they're like, wow, this is really good. Now, what I've done here is I've made the graph transparent. This is what tipping did. And I've superimposed the curves. So this is the PFS of ROS1 on crizotinib, and this is the PFS of ROS1 on pemetrexid, yellow. Yellow versus this thing I've added in. What do you think? It's frontline lung cancer patients. Exactly. So I would say, when you do a cross-trial comparison, I won't conclude that pemetrexid is better. That's inappropriate, because there might be some differences between. I would just say that they're not in different ballparks. They're in the same ballpark. Maybe it's better. Maybe the other one's better. But it's at least enough that you could really actually test these two head-to-head. -head. But in fact, we will never test them head-to-head. There's no randomized study. It will never, ever happen because the FDA has given full approval for this drug and everyone has switched practice. And people in their mind think it would be heresy to give a cytotoxic drug to somebody with a druggable mutation like ROS1 and you give them a drug and they do so well on the drug. That's like the mindset. And then we're going to do a future study, probably an uncontrolled study of, I don't know, seritinib. And maybe we'll switch to that. Or an uncontrolled study of, I don't know, what's the other drug they're trying in ROS1? They're trying brigatinib or I don't know. They're trying one of these drugs in ROS1 or something. I don't think they will be. ROS1 is even rarer than ALK. We'll see. But even if they compare them and you find like a two-month PFS benefit, you still don't know what it's like compared against chemo. Yeah. It's astonishing to me. I guess I'd say that like, I don't know, people, I don't know, you can credit the drug, but you also have to like note that, um, and the other thing is the responses were really high. The response rate was super high from Pemetrexid and ROS1. So the quite, I mean, they probably do have indolent, I mean, it's a more indolent biology and it's more pan-sensitive to everything. And part of why they're living so long is that, um, you know, that, like, that, 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 that they do well with chemo, too. And that's why when we talk about, like, IDH2 inhibitors and AML, the median survival of the IDH2 inhibitor um, in, the random, in the uncontrolled study that led to approval of ivocitinib was 8.8 .8 months. And people say, well, the median survival of relapsed AML, that's only, like, two months or three months. But what's the median survival of, of um, IDH2 relapsed AML? And now you're getting, actually, somebody published, it's, like, 4.85 months. And what's the difference between the average person with IDH2 and the person who came on your trial, where they are like, and, and the fact, once somebody goes on a trial, not only do you give them the trial medicine, but you're not going to let them go on hospice next week. But if they had an IDH2 mutation you didn't know about, and they're relapsed AML, and they're feeling a little bit tired, and you know, you'll say, well, you know, this is a bad condition. You've already kind of outlived what I expected. Now it's time to go on hospice kind of thing. So when we have a new drug, not only do you benefit from the drug, but the doctor's mentality is we're going to push on the gas pedal and give you better supportive care. We'll keep you transfusing you. I'm not going to put this guy in hospice. He's on my IDH study. You know, all these differences. So of, that, of the four-month difference between IDH2 drug on you know, trial and 4.8 months natural history, I think you probably lose half of it or maybe more. Who knows? And the last thing I'd say, the basket studies. Okay, so this larotrectinib is a tumor agnostic uh, drug. It's used in all different tumor types. And everyone says, you know, it's a tumor agnostic. We're checking for TREK everywhere. But it's kind of disingenuous because the most common places in this study were salivary gland, soft tissue sarcoma, infantile fibrosarcoma, thyroid tumor. It's not really in everything equally. It's in salivary gland tumor a lot and soft tissue sarcoma and infantile fibrosarcoma, which I don't know anything about. So this Antonius Hazim, who was a resident or student here, is really good. He, pulled, he got every single basket study ever published in the literature, and these were the baskets, and these were the drugs. And he went through every study, and he pulled out the number of patients with every tumor type in that basket study. Okay, so we had people with hypereosinophilic syndrome, and ampullary tumors, and small intestinal, and biliary, and pancreas, and colon, and lung, and breast. He's pulling out all the people in all of the baskets. So this is putting all the baskets in one basket, the basket of baskets. And he's plotting the number of patients in that basket study, in the pooled basket study, and the incidence per 100,000 of the cancer in the population. And the red line is the one-to-one -one line. And the blue line is the regression line of the tumor, of the cancers. Okay, so who can, who know has figured out what this means? This is a ratio of how frequent the tumor is in the population versus how frequent those patients are enrolled in the basket study. And the red line is the line at which 
the frequency in the population and the frequency of enrollment in my basket study are identical. And the blue line is what we actually observe. So is the slope of the blue line higher or lower than the slope of the red line? Lower. It overrepresents what? Yes, it overrepresents rare cancers. Overrepresents rare cancers. I think this is like a key point, which is, why is this study full of this? And why, when you look at every study like this, it's full of this? It's because, I, I will argue, this is a prediction, my last prediction, I will argue, I bet, in 15 years from now, when we look back on the enthusiasm for gene sequencing, there will be more drugs we use. There'll be more lyrotrectinibs and blue 001 and ret inhibitors or whatever. They will be preferentially used in people with rarer tumors and much less likely to make the sizable impact on prostate, lung, colon, ovarian, and breast, the, the most common tumors, because single druggable alterations are probably responsible preferentially in rarer cancers because that's in part why you're having the cancer. You were unlucky enough to have a fusion in, in TREK, which is this weird gene that nobody else is caring about. But in these tumor types, these are mutated broadly, many, many genes, the product of environment and lifestyle and global gene dysfunction. And there's not gonna be single drivers and you're not gonna respond to these drugs and they're not gonna be durable. And you need to do something totally different if you really wanna make substantive progress there. And so I think that all of the, the, the tumor agnostic, we use that bucket, it'll be agnostic, but it's really more of these kind of things that we have to go look up and up to date. And it's not gonna be these kind of things that are filling our clinic. So that's my theory, all right. This last part, I was gonna convince you not to do gene trails and send your, okay. So if you look at all the basket studies, blue are responders and orange are non-responders. What do you think, more blue or more orange? Orange. It's a 21% response rate in every basket study. Relapse refractory tumors, all different histologies. This is a study that came out in 2005 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It looked at the response rate of cytotoxic drugs in all relapse refractory patients entering on phase one clinical trials. What's the response rate of cytotoxic drugs in phase one studies 20 years ago? 16.4 to 27%. I, I bet if you just gave these people all platinum, you'd have like similar thing. If you give all these relapse people platinum. Okay, now next generation sequencing. Okay, you all like to send gene trails or foundation medicine, and some people like to send Guardian 360, which is that circulating blood thing. If you took 40, 56 people and you sent the same test, one test would give you 133 mutations, the other test would give you 120 mutations, and you'd feel like oh, that's pretty similar, but the difference would be only 36 of the only 17% of the time they're giving you the same mutations. This is what multiple papers have shown. That a lot of the time they're giving you different mutations. That's very problematic. Um, okay, but one's in tissue, one's in blood. Okay, so somebody did two tissue assays. The same tissue is being sent to two companies, and only a third of the time you get the same mutations. Do these graphs make sense? These are the mutations it gives you, and this is the overlap Venn diagram. Okay, 33% of the time same mutations. Same thing, same tissue. Same tissue is being sent to two different companies. Yes, this is where they have overlapping genes. They're testing the same genes, not the same exact slice of the tissue. Maybe one got a different slice. Okay, that's one thing, or the assay is crap. Okay, this is when they actually recommend drugs. Foundation Medicine, nine people sent the rep have reports from both companies. Foundation says give them these 20 drugs, and the Guardian says give them these 34 drugs, but only nine of those drugs are the same drug, okay? So this is like when you actually get the Foundation report and it says consider trying, um, you know, uh, Idelalisib, well, you maybe send a different company to tell you say consider trying something else, Pazopinib. Okay, so this is the idea of cancer heterogeneity, which is that we have like founder clones and all these branches and metastasis, and like people have done elegant work where they've biopsied all these sites and sequenced them and they have different mutations. And I guess what I wanna suggest is, if we really have a strategy now where we take people's tissue and send them to these companies, and we're sending you know, this piece or this piece, and we're getting different mutations, how successful are these drugs gonna be? Because they're only gonna drug the green part, and all this is gonna grow, or they're only gonna drug the pink, and everything else will grow. It just doesn't seem very promising. And that's probably why the outcomes are so bad. Yeah, and yeah, send the most recent tissue, but is that from the primary? or metastasis one or metastasis two? Is it from the liver met? Is it from the colon? 
Is it from, I mean, I think there is, it's gonna be, you're gonna get different things back. And then when it says take, take pazopinib, and you have to go apply to your committee and get permission to give pazopinib, uh, how confident is the pazopinib gonna shrink? To, say, to improve someone's outcome in cancer, you cannot just treat part of the tumor. You gotta treat almost all of the tumor. Even like one resistant clone will kill you in a few years. But if you're not only treating 10% of the tumor, you might as well not treat any tumor at all because it's, it's gonna be. Yeah, I guess we'll find out because they've had some phase two trials with some success, but they're doing a phase three, and the phase three will answer whether or not it was like a olarimab, false positive phase two effect. I guess I'd say, when you'd run a phase two trial and you didn't intend to look at overall survival, some of those trials are gonna be hugely positive by chance alone, and they're gonna get amplified. And all the phase two trials that went the other way are gonna get buried, and that are null, no one's gonna talk about. You're, you're always gonna get a few phase two trials with huge differences. Just like if we divided this room into like two basketball teams, every one, every random, if I keep randomly dividing you, maybe at one point I'll have pick, happen to pick all the really good basketball players on one team and all the other play, you know. I'm gonna get lucky one point, I'm gonna have a really good, I'm gonna have a really good team. So I think I'll wait for the phase three, then we'll think about how it might work. I'll put my bet on negative. Okay, super responders. We've done a couple of these. Okay, so sometimes I hear go to talks and the talk always starts with, we had a patient with anaplastic thyroid cancer and um, we sequenced this person, they had an ALK mutation and I know ALK responds to crizotinib. I give them crizotinib and they had a six month duration of response. What's the median survival of anaplastic thyroid cancer? It's like four months median survival. And I put my patient on it with six months. And this wasn't even my patient's first therapy. It was a second therapy. So we read a case like this and we're like, wow, that's really impressive. Maybe there's something to this precision narrative. Then you look and you read in the notes, the patient lived two years with anaplastic thyroid cancer before they got the crizotinib. I was like, wow, this person is already like the 99.99 percentile. And now they're like, you know, have a good response. So Ja and Go did, made this graph. You may know them, the former chief and former resident. And this was every single case report of a super responder they could find in the entire literature. And this is all the tumor types they have. And she used some, it's a good, I mean, it's a nice visual. And the gray says the duration of response to all of the prior drugs. And then the next color is the duration of response to the super drug, the drug that led to a super response. And what you see is there's some people who had, look at this kidney cancer, they barely responded, but then they got the new drug and had a huge response. So like, okay, maybe there's something to that. Maybe this person barely responded and now, wow, big response. That's pretty reasonable. Some people, there's the first drug they got was a super response. In that case, I'm like, well, that doesn't tell me a lot because what if they happen to just have indolent biology? I don't know. And some people, this person, breast cancer, lived so many months and now has a super response. But look at how long they're already a super person. They're super. They're, they were super before they even, got, they even met you, okay? And this person, super person, melanoma, because this is in months, 50 months, 100 months, 150. The super person with melanoma, now you claim, you're taking success for all their success? It's like if you give me like a, a kid that goes to Harvard and then I, I give him one lecture and then I say I helped them, I made them really smart. Like, they already went to Harvard, you know. Okay, so they plotted this von Hoff line. So this is the idea that, okay, what's our cutoff for super responder? The progression-free survival two on your super drug divided by the prior progression-free survival should be 1.3 or higher. In other words, it should be one, you know, we, we average, we go from like one to 0.8 to 0.8 to 0.8. You know, we keep losing, every next progression is faster. But if it was longer, then maybe that's telling you something that it's an effective drug. And so what, what they find here is that even by this cutoff, 50% of the points are below the line and only 50% are above the line. So when you survey the published literature and you get people who are saying, I have a super responder case, I have found a super response, and you plot them on a very, I think, not even impressive, like 1.3 is not like two or four or six. It's a modest improvement in PFS. Half of them don't even meet the cutoff. Half of them are like this person. You're like, it's not impressive at all. Okay, this is, um, look at this PET scan. People show you these kinds of PET scans. This is um, cabozantinib in prostate cancer. When do you use cabozantinib in prostate cancer? You do not, because the phase three trial was negative. But these were the phase two results. Look how impressive it looked. Now what happened? Doesn't work. Okay, this was a randomized control trial where you were, random, you were randomized to, actually everyone had genetic sequencing, and then you're randomized to either targeted therapy or off-target therapy. So this is testing the precision oncology strategy, the SHIVA study. And actually it's like a negative study. There's no improvement in PFS in any of the three arms of the study. 
Okay, that's that's pretty much the end of it. Any questions? You want to talk about censoring? Okay, so if your primary endpoint is progression-free survival, if your primary endpoint is overall survival, and you know how when you follow the curves out, the numbers get smaller under the at risk of the curve. When the numbers get smaller in the endpoints overall survival, what are the only two things that have happened that led the number to get smaller? OS. Let's do OS. It's easier. Yeah, death or censoring. So they, if they died, they are no longer at risk. And if they're censored, they're no longer at risk. And the only reason you're censored in an overall survival plot is if you enrolled on the study seven months ago, and I'm plotting the 12-month 12, the 12 outcomes. I don't know what will happen to you at 12 months. You're still alive, so I have to remove you from the denominator. Okay, only two reasons you get censored in overall survival. You have not been followed that long, or you have died already, experienced the event of interest. Um, uh, the thing about what if they can't get a hold of them? It turns out in modern studies, not being able to get a hold of a person is something extremely rare for overall survival. You can get a hold of like 99% of people, because you can call them up and find the relative and you know, hey, what happened to Susie? Oh, she died? Okay, what day? If they don't, they, no, they usually, these, they will track you down. I mean, it's not like, yeah, they're already enrolling people who want to be on a trial. They'll track you down for OS. Progression-free survival. The same two things. You've experienced the event of interest, or you're censored, but there's an additional way in which you can be censored. Not just that we, not just you enrolled like a month ago. What's the additional way you can be censored? You had the event. In overall survival, you either have the event or you've enrolled recently. With PFS, you've had the event, you don't have a scan. You've had the event, you enroll recently, or you don't have a scan. PFS has another reason why we have to censor someone. You don't have a scan. I need scans every, every time these bars dip. I need a scan. And if this person was lazy and didn't come to my clinic, or the doctor screwed up, and I don't have a scan, what the heck am I supposed to do with this data point? I, I need the scan at three-month intervals. And if I have a four-month scan, OK, maybe I can try to use that. But it's a protocol violation. And what if this person just decided not to come, come goes to City of Hope? Or MD Anderson, they could save their life at MD Anderson. Or they looked in the US News and World Report ranking, and they saw that we are the 40, 48th best cancer hospital. Did you know that? 40, 41st. <laughs> I say, why am I going to 41? I should be going to two. <laughs> no, you, you can imagine. They don't come. OK, now, so that has introduced something different. Be, enrolling recently, there's, not, there's no difference between the, per, there's, you can't, you wouldn't believe that the people who enroll initially on the study and the people who enroll now are that much different. The only thing that's happened is time. But maybe there's word that gets out the study is garbage and people are like reluctant to enroll. Maybe something does happen. But that's a, that's a potential bias. But if, if, the, if the reason you're censoring somebody is because they are not getting the scans, you've introduced a lot of bias. Because who are the people who don't get scans? They're different people. They may be people who are, they take the study medication, they have super bad nausea, and then they think you're an idiot, and they don't want to come back and get a scan. Or they are, have some socioeconomic troubles, or they have no one to give them a ride, or something like that, you know, some problem in their life. And so this is a Kaplan-Meier plot, that, and Kaplan-Meier, it, it, it's a way to use maximal information. We are using as much information about every single person as we can to construct a survival estimate. You know, it's always called an estimate. It's not called the actual survival function. Because the only way to know the actual survival function is to wait till everybody's dead and then plot it out. So it's an estimate. We use as much information to estimate it. Every time interval, every time interval, we use as many people as we have at that time interval to estimate the point estimate. And if one of the, and in the next time interval is only four people and one dies, we'll assume it goes down by a quarter. But if we have 20 people there and we know only three die, we know it wasn't quite a quarter, so we can adjust it a little bit later. Okay, so it's an estimate. And the estimate makes one assumption, that the people you censor and the people who you include are no different. They, it's uninformative censoring. The censored people are no healthier, wealthier, or wise. But in the progression-free survival plot, censored people may be different because some people may be censored because they don't get scans, and those people it may be informative. There may be something about those people that is different than people who you're including in your plot. Okay, so this is Bolero, Everlimus plus Eximestane versus placebo Eximestane in breast cancer. This is a trial with a PFS benefit, but no OS benefit. And what Usama Bilal from Hopkins and I did a few years ago was we downloaded the graph and we digitalized the PFS curve so we could scrape the data. It's, you know, it's like a kind of a crude scrape. And then what Usama said, when we went through underneath the, the, the line and we counted up, all right, there's 300 people, or let's make the math easy. There's 100 people who start, and 20% of people die, so it should be 80, 
but it says 70 at time point two. So I know 10 people are censored. Okay, so we went through every time point and we added up how many people are censored at every time point. Um, okay, so you know how many people are censored at every time point. And what Usama says is, those 10 people censored here and 20 people censored here, we're assuming their outcome was the same as the people you included. But what if you assume that they did better and what if you assume that they did worse? What if you assume that the people censored were the ones more likely to go and, and have progression? Because you know, they're, they may be censored because they have more toxicity or something like that. And so he's plotted these other curves. So he's plotted the actual curve and then the best case scenario that censored people do fine, they have happily ever after, and the worst case scenario that censored people go home and immediately progress. And the truth is something in between the best case and worst case scenario. And he does the same for the placebo arm. In which arm is there more splaying of the curves? Yes, there's more splaying of the curves in the Everlimus than in placebo. Why? If there's more splaying of the curves, what must be true? There's more censoring. I think it's informative, but there's more censoring. But he's making a good point. If there's a different amount of censoring in one arm versus the other, that's very fishy. Why are these, these are all the people who don't know how to show up to scans and these are all the people who keep an alarm clock? That doesn't make any sense, you know? These people are really not showing up to scans and these people are really get their act together, okay? And they're randomly chosen, so that can't be the case, okay? So the splay, the first thing, the splay is telling you that more people are censored in the treatment arm than the control arm. And this was one-to-one -one randomization, so that shouldn't have happened, okay? Um, why are more people being censored then? It's not because they're more likely to be like delinquent. Now you can speculate freely. Yes, it sucks to be on Everlimus. It sucks to be on Everlimus and they say to hell with this study. I'm not taking this stupid drug. It's a stupid doctor at that stupid tertiary referral center. They didn't spend any, much, any time with me anyway. Uh, okay, so the splay is telling you there's differential censoring and maybe this hypothesis makes it more toxic. And the fact that the curves cross, what does that tell you? It might not actually have an effect. That all you have to do is make some modest assumptions about the people being censored be different and you will lose the whole PFS benefit. The PFS benefit hinges on the assumptions we're making about censored people. It depends on those assumptions. Those may or may not be true. So what was the overall survival benefit in this trial? Nothing. And what was the PFS benefit? Something. So when people ask, why do PFS not translate to OS? One possibility is it's a poor surrogate. And the other possibility is that maybe it's an artifact. Maybe the reason there's a PFS benefit but not an OS benefit is that artifactually the case, that we are censoring in a way that creates this artifact. If I did a randomized trial of atropine versus placebo in cancer, and I use progression-free survival as a primary endpoint, atropine, what will atropine do? Make your mouth dry, and it'll make you feel really lousy. And if I give atropine to 100 people with the breast cancer and 100 people without the placebo, who is going to be most likely to um, uh, not, who atropine will hurt the most? I think it'll hurt the person the most who's got the biggest tumors, who's already the most like on the cusp of, you know, it's a little push, but it's going to, the person who's about to tip over, it's going to push them over, you know? They're not going to come to my clinic. But the, but the placebo group, you know, I'm going to get them all back. And so if I do scans on this, I wouldn't be surprised if an atropine versus sugar pill trial, atropine has a better PFS. Because the people who can take atropine and stomach it, and take that insult and still come to my clinic and get the scan, those are the hardy ones, you know? It's a test, it's a, it's a test, isn't it? It's a test to recruit who is strong. And once I get the strong ones, the PFS is better than the PFS in the control arm, and now atropine is approved for breast cancer based on PFS. Oh, and there's no OS benefit. Oh, I don't know, it must be post-protocol therapy that resulted in that. You know, that can make up a lot of reasons. Anyway, so that's the point about censoring. Yeah, I think, so I guess I'd say that I think the lecture of, the lesson of all these three-part series is that there's a lot of games that are being played, and uh, it's very difficult to see all the games. Uh, it takes a lot of effort. And, and there's probably games yet to be played. But they'll all be described in Malignant in chapters 9, 10, 11, 12. The third section of the book, the first section of the book is um, on cost of drugs, which we didn't talk about, maybe some other day, surrogate endpoints, the whole four, four chapters. And then the next four chapters are on hype, how the money flows through the system, how the politics works, how disease lobbies and all those kind of social forces. The third section is just clinical trials 101. How do we, how do, we do these studies? What's propensity score? How do we do these analyses? Observational studies, randomized studies, uh, all these games that are being played. And then the fourth section is like, how can we reform the, the system? My theory is that the whole system will retool. I think, that the, I think that the reason why so much of what happens in our field early in preclinical science is because we get away, we know the bar is low. 
We wouldn't fund some of these labs doing lousy. We just can the funding. The drug companies would run fewer trials, and they'd have to like look for drugs. And we would search more broadly. I think we'd give up on. We wouldn't have a Me Too mentality. We wouldn't be like ten, you know, TKIs in renal cell cancer. Okay. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.